Hi, I'm Josephine Hughes. I'm the mother of two transgender daughters who came out in their teens and early 20s. I told my own stories in series one of Gloriously Unready. And in season two, I'm finding out more about transgender people's experiences. Because as I adapted to having transgender daughters, it helped me a lot to get to know transgender people. In this series, I ask, what's it like to come out as transgender to a world that is not always ready for you? And how can you ever be ready to tell the people that you love that you're not the person they think you are? I invited Sam Hope on the show for their expertise as a therapist working with the LGBTQ plus community. Sam is bisexual and a non-binary trans person who was a significant part of the LGBTQ plus community in their hometown of Nottingham for many years. Sam is an equality, diversity and inclusion trainer with specialisms in minority stress, trauma and gender. They have spent many years working in domestic and sexual violence services where they still train workers. Sam's book, Person-Centred Counselling for Trans and Gender Diverse People, was published in 2019. So Sam, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? Sure. Um, Yeah, I'm Sam Hope. I um, am a person-centred therapist. I qualified in 2004, so I've been doing this a while. I um, have a long-term interest in working with um, equality, diversity and oppression issues. I've worked in survivor services a lot. And and then in about 2013, I decided to transition um, and kind of got siloed in working around trans issues as a result. so now I do, I have exclusively private practice. I mainly work with um, marginalised identities and particularly trans identities and neurodiversity and trauma. And um, and I also do a lot of training. And in 2019, I had a book published, which is Person-Centred Counselling for Trans and Gender Diverse People. Thank you. So there's a lot there. And I know, I know there's sort of quite a lot of other things that you've done as well, such as sort of running the trans space in Nottingham and sort of really providing a lot of support for for trans people. So this may sound a daft question, but for those of us that don't know, could you explain what being non-binary means? Yes, yeah, a really good question. And uh, I, I'm not actually a fan of the word non-binary because it feels like it's defining me on the basis of what I'm not. And it can be quite an excluding identity, whereas sort of, I guess my experience of gender is more that I'm a complicated mixture of things rather than I'm an absence of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I guess it's a, it's a term that works relatively well as a catch-all term for people who can't exclusively put themselves into one of the, bo- of the binary boxes, which let's be clear, were made up by 19th century science um, that didn't know any better um, and, you know, doesn't really work for the huge diversity, you know, including intersex people, not just not just trans people. So, yeah, so non-binary is a bit of a catch-all term. There are lots of different experiences of non-binary. There are gender-fluid people. There are 
gender vague people, there are gender queer people, there's all sorts of things. And there are people who wouldn't use the term non-binary who might fit the description of non-binary. And yeah, it gets really, really complicated. And even more complicated than that is it's not a word that's been around for that long. And before not the word non-binary was around, we had the word transgender. Mm -hmm. which was mostly popularised by an activist and writer called Leslie Feinberg, who now might identify as non-binary, but at the time the word transgender was separate from the word transsexual, and it, and it was a much bigger and wider term that included a huge range of people who experienced gender in complicated ways, shall we say, or performed or expressed gender in complicated ways. And then the word transgender kind of slowly got taken over to mean just mean binary people who transition and the rest of us got nudged out. So we needed a new word, Yeah, <laughs> which is kind of, it kind of mirrors what's happened. You know, like if you go back to the 1970s, the word gay meant bi people, trans people, everybody. And then everybody apart from a particular kind of gay person got nudged out and we had to re-include ourselves with re with new words in the term, the acronym LGBT. Mm. So it, it, this happens all the time, whatever word we come up with, people will get nudged out of it and everybody will have a conversation about who belongs and who counts. And so, yeah, it keeps happening. Um, yes. And, you know, and I know that there are still arguments about whether non-binary people are trans in my belief, yes, yes we are the word means us and includes us um i respect non-binary people who don't want to um include themselves under the trans umbrella and i especially you know want to respect the fact that all of these words are just our way of looking at a thing at this moment in history and there have been all kinds of other ways of thinking about gender in other cultures and other kinds of language so i don't want to say this is what somebody is if the label doesn't fit. But equally speaking, I'm as trans as anyone else, whether or not I've medically transitioned. In my case, I have, but for a long time I didn't, and and I was still trans. It, it's really interesting because I think there's a lot to do with... That, I mean, speaking to my daughter, she said that before the word was there, she didn't really have a way of explaining like who she was but once she was able to come across the word transgender it sort of clicked for her then and so much of our experience is finding that something that fits isn't it and finding an expression I think do you think that was sort of more difficult for you was it hard to sort of find a, a word that sort of encompassed your your feelings I, I, I don't know I first used the word lesbian to describe myself when I was 18 which was back in 1989, mm -hmm. um, which was a long, long time ago. And at that time, I think it was understood in my head and in the popular understanding that um, lesbians weren't just women who liked women, they were gender divergent, gender different, um, you know, gender queer. And, and I guess when I used the word lesbian then, I probably more meant queer, but what we would mean as queer now mm -hmm. and then sort of into like my early 20s I started identifying myself as bisexual um, but the complication was I was generally more attracted to men and that didn't quite fit because 
people's idea is that if you're gender complicated, then you must be attracted to quote unquote same sex. And that was never the case for me. I'm much more similar to a feminine gay man than I am to a masculine woman. So yeah, so I identified myself as bi, but mostly dated men and my queerness kind of felt quite erased, although I, um, I was very gender sort of non-normative. You know, I was, I, I was a biker and I was quite sort of, you know, leather clad and tough and, um, and definitely not fitting any kind of feminine stereotypes. Yeah, and then in my 30s, I, um, I, my, my sexuality shifted a little bit and I sort of felt a bit more affinity and attraction towards um, sort of masculine and, andro and androgynous women. Um, so I kind of came out again as lesbian, although it, again, it was still much more about my gender than it was about my sexuality. And yeah, like your daughter, it wasn't until I saw the conversations around non-binary that that felt like, oh, that explains me a little better, even though I don't like the word, the kind of conversations that were happening. People like CN Lester kind of coming into the public eye actually really did make a difference to me to sort of kind of see myself a bit more accurately mirrored and to see a little bit more diversity of non-binary experiences that went beyond the idea of being a masculine woman um, or being, you know, sort of a particular kind of sort of gender complication. And, and, and I think there was a real moment of people saying, oh, gender is much more complicated than people think. People's experience is much more complicated and we can't keep trying to, you know, silo people into binary boxes or narrow definitions. And that really helped me sort of figure out my own, my own experience of gender and, and articulate it more. Um, and I came out as non-binary and started using they, them pronouns, which was, again, it was just starting to happen that that was possible. And, and it was a relief to be able to do that. And oh, it's a slippery slope once you start with the pronouns, <laughs> you end up transitioning. That's not true, obviously. But for me, it opened up stuff. And, and it was the moment I changed my name. Um, I had this amazing moment where I remembered something that I'd completely erased from my memory, which was that when I was 12, I wanted to be called Sam. Wow. And I had really, really pushed this for a long time um, and nobody would do it. And when I remembered this, which had been completely suppressed, I said to everybody, oh, I'm Sam now. And the moment I said I'm Sam, it opened up so many more possibilities and it made me realise that actually transitioning was right for me and then people everybody thought oh thank god you're actually a trans man are you and no <laughs> <laughs> I'm binary sorry <laughs> but I'm much more comfortable I, my face in the mirror looks more me and I feel more comfortable in my body having medically transitioned and I'm still non-binary yeah definitely not a guy yeah and have a man's experience of the world yeah. um, and that in that is not me saying trans people in general are all non-binary but for me personally that is my experience mm -hmm. yeah yeah uh, the thing that's sort of coming up for me just just listening to you is that that exploration that you went on you know and and, and sort of like trying to work out over a a number of years really sort of how you fitted and what felt right for you and I suppose that that feels very courageous actually 
and, and did you experience prejudice or discrimination as as you were exploring and you know because it's sort of like a long history really of of being different to what people maybe wanted or expected yeah in so many ways and I you know I don't want to rule out the way that neurodiversity marginalizes you and the way that people instantly react negatively towards someone who expresses himself in neurodivergent ways um but for sure there was so much of my experience where i yeah i have been in some pretty difficult and hairy situations over the years because of being different and although i know trans women experience far more overt violence than people who are trans misogyny exempt like myself yeah, I don't want to under, equally don't want to understate how it was bad enough. And yeah, and I think the other thing I probably didn't name was that when I was doing my counselling training, there was a trans woman who I trained alongside who experienced a lot of discrimination. And I think that at that time I was questioning my gender. That was around the time I came out as a lesbian. And I think that coming out as a lesbian was a safer thing to do than coming out as trans at that point. And I had that, you know, experience of seeing what it was like within the professional setting and, and within and from even from tutors. Mm. Um, and sure enough, when I came out as trans, I have I've experienced so much discrimination from counselling spaces. It's really, really shocking how mm. how regressive. Um, the counselling profession is mm. and, uh, and it's really disappointing Like Sam I'm shocked and disappointed that parts of the counselling profession are unsupportive towards the LGBTQ plus community however there are supportive therapists out there and if you're looking for counselling for yourself or a family member please check out the show notes for more information on finding a therapist so you mentioned about the neurodiversity as well. I'd love to explore that a, a, a bit more with you. So just for the benefit of anybody who isn't a professional who's listening, um, could we just sort of define what we mean by, I don't know, this is a bit of a silly question really again, um, <laughs> what we mean by neurodiversity? Um, yeah. <laughs> Oh, a little sigh. <laughs> Sorry, Sam. No. I mean, I guess I'm going to go just with a quick answer, which yeah. is I think neurodiversity and 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 self-describing myself as neurodivergent is, um, you know, a paradigm shift. It's it's um, a way of of identifying sort of natural diversity in humans um, and in the ways that our brains work, rather than thinking about it in terms of discrete diagnoses and for somebody like myself who has um, a diagnosis of autism and ADHD um, probably could also be described as highly sensitive person could be described as probably dyspraxic and actually you know I mean some of the youngsters are saying things like neurospicy or and you know Nick Walker's talking about neuroqueer um, and I quite sort of like that understanding that the brains don't all come in the same flavour, an accommodating world would understand that and life would not be so disabling or difficult for us, but but here we all are. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I, I'm neurodivergent and, and I think it's really interesting that a lot of trans people are neurodivergent. I don't hold with 
the idea that being neurodivergent makes it easier for us to come out as trans. I don't think that's true. I think we face more pushback on our identities, more gaslighting, more um, more sort of being pushed into masking our identity. So I don't really believe that it makes it, it easier to come out as trans. I think that that we are just quirky in multiple ways. We also are more likely to be left-handed, have um, extra long fingers, elastic skin and bendy joints. Um, I just think we're quirky and, and, uh, and these quirks kind of come along with each other often. Yeah. So, you know, if you're gay, you're more likely to be left-handed. That's a thing, but nobody says, how did your left-handedness cause your gayness? Yeah, so. yeah. I, I see it quite a lot in discussions amongst parents anyway. Oh, you know, my, my child is autistic or ADHD or whatever. Is it that? Is that the reason why they're saying they're transgender? And, and I've got a bit of experience with both of them, actually. <laughs> So I've got one of my daughters is left-handed, but probably not necessarily um, neurodivergent. And the other one is right-handed, probably is. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it is one of those things, isn't it? That's used almost, it's almost like people's neurodivergence is weaponized against their gender identity, isn't it? I mean, I think it's at the core of transphobia anyway, this, this idea that we will use something to undermine your identity. Um, mm -hmm. If you're young, we'll say you're too young to know, or if you're a teenager, it's peer pressure, or if you're autistic, you don't understand gender well enough, or you don't conform well enough to mm. societal norms. You know, if you've got mental health problems, which is hard not to in a transphobic world, then, you know, then you're deluded. But there's always, and obviously for trans women, particularly there's this sort of extra layer of, horrible suspicion and um, put mm. onto trans women's identities and so much misogyny layered up in in, in that in particular mm. but that yeah there's always a way of undermining a trans identity but it does infantilize autistic and neurodivergent people to start saying that we understand ourselves less well and we are less able to identify ourselves and, our ident and, and express our identities than neurotypical folk and it's a yeah it's a really good way of pushing back on young trans people is to say, oh, well, we'll look at your gender identity when, um, you know, when we've addressed your neurodiversity and, 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 and just siloing them into a life of absolute misery and being put on hold, which we know is psychologically damaging to them. All the, you know, all the evidence says if you try and suppress somebody's, at any identity, but particularly a trans identity, it's going to have a really bad mental health impact on them. But we're quite happy to injure young people um, on this sort of idea, you know, that or well, maybe, you know, sort of one in 200 is going to come to regret their decision. So it's okay to injure nearly all young trans people on the basis of saving that one in 200, which, I mean, I think it says a lot about priorities, doesn't it? Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I hadn't really sort of thought about it like that before. So it's a, it's, it's a really sort of interesting thing. I mean, I think from a, a sort of parent's perspective, certainly for me, it was something that wasn't really in my awareness. Mm. So when my kids did tell me they were transgender, it was like, that can't possibly be true. And I think there's a sort of element of, of sort of denial, really, that I had to work through um, to understand that that this was who, who they really are. Of course, there's always that sort of worry about, oh, what if they regret it? 
you do spend a, a lot of time working in this field. So what would be your sort of answer to that parental concern or what if they've got it wrong? So if they have got it wrong, then the absolute best thing you can do is support them and support their identity and unequivocally use the right pronouns, support whatever they want to do, because then they won't dig their heels in with their identity. They won't feel like they have to go further along a route that isn't right for them to prove their identity. If you honour and respect somebody's identity and pronouns without them needing to go through any medical processes, then they aren't going to feel so compelled to go through medical processes just so that the world accepts them, which is what sometimes people still do. I mean, sometimes people like myself feel profoundly more congruent in our bodies after medical processes. But for some trans people, it's a purely social and identity experience. And a lot of trans people are comfortable in their bodies as they are. But if they feel like they have to change their bodies in order to gain acceptance, civil rights, respect, I mean, you know, and still in the UK, you can only get certain civil rights by going through a medical process. So obviously, I would have thought that it is self-evident that if you are respectful of how somebody identifies without them needing to jump through hoops um, and go to extremes, then they are not going to need to jump through hoops and go to extremes. So, mm. um, so even if it was true that a lot of young people change their minds, which it isn't, and there is robust evidence that that is not the case, but even if it was the case, it still makes sense to be supportive I mean, it's a bit like, you know, when I was a teenager, I dated a really bad boyfriend and my mum hating him kept me in that relationship for way longer than I needed to. And, and if she'd just kind of gone along and been supportive of the relationship, I would have realised. In fact, the day that she turned around and defended him was the day that I was like, what? And dumped him. So, you know, I, I, I can't stress enough parents, you know, just support your kids un unequivocally and they'll figure it out. It isn't, you know, yes, it, it is our, in our culture to pervasively doubt trans identities and think that they are likely to be wrong or deluded. That's not true. It completely flies in the face of all the evidence of trans experiences. However, even if it was true, I still think it would be the best thing to do to just be supportive. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And certainly sort of like listening to your journey, it sounds like, you know, it, it took time, didn't it? And you needed that space to just explore and, you know, to have that space. But if um, people had just called me Sam when I was 12, yeah. <laughs> it would have made a difference. You know, I wasn't going to medically transition back then. It was the 1980s. I wasn't, you know, that wasn't really on offer. But if people had honoured my identity as Sam and let me give that space to think about my identity I think it would have saved me a lot of pain and a lot of trauma and given me a lot more ability to connect to my own experience to connect to my own body to connect to like my identity and I think I genuinely think my life would have been easier less stressful um, and less traumatic so I, I, I really think it would have made a huge difference. That's a really sort of important thing to hear, I think. I think that's important for us as parents to hear as well. 
to honour that and, and the difference that it would have made. So do, do you think that if you are neurodiverse, that makes it more difficult for people? Definitely. And yeah. it's getting better. And, you know, I'm quite grateful. I was kind of at Nottingham Gender Clinic at a time when they just started to have some crossover working between the gender clinic and the autism service. Even so, I waited till I got my gender, di- gender dysphoria diagnosis and was in treatment before I mentioned the fact that I thought I might be autistic because I was worried that I would, you know, that it would provide barriers to yeah. getting diagnosed or slow mm. things down. Um, and, and that is, you know, a realistic concern. There have certainly been a lot of autistic people who've um, been pushed back um, from getting diagnosed. Um, and, and I think particularly if you're non-binary as well, um, this sort of idea of gender confusion comes comes up as if um, just as if complicated means confused, <laughs> and just because it's hard to explain to somebody who doesn't understand, it doesn't necessarily mean we're confused. We might confuse you, but that's a different thing. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, there's a lot of that, and I think um, also autistic people, particularly who have sensory issues, um, might face barriers in terms of things like, um, you know, if you're, especially if you're trans feminine, you know, the texture of clothes and makeup and expectations of how you'll express yourself when you have, if you have a comfort hoodie and jeans and you're expected to turn up at a gender clinic in makeup and a dress, which is ridiculous. Why should women have to wear makeup and dresses? But but here we all are. This is this is how it is for trans people. So yeah. So that so there can be some pushback against you know you're not trying hard enough to express your gender identity correctly. Uh, you know I faced barriers um, with transitioning my voice because actually it's really hard with ADHD to do to keep up with the kinds of process trying train my voice yeah so, so my voice completely doesn't pass you know which means that if I'm wearing a mask and I go into a shop I get called love and ma'am and all of this stuff yeah. and then and then I'm in this position where I come out of the shop if I take my mask off and they see me take my mask off or somebody sees me it, there, there could be a real moment of you know dissonance for people because yeah. I've got a beard yeah. um so yeah it's it's it, it gets a bit complicated I think sometimes these sort of little details of yeah. transition but a lot of that's about cis people's expectations of us and how we would perform our gender and how we would and I quite like my voice I don't really want to change it but but there is an expectation that I should I, I just got to say I've had a penny dropping moment there where you talked about the um the sensory stuff the makeup and that sort of stuff because I I know sort of like in both my personal experience and and hearing other mums talking about it as um you know they're looking at their child and they're saying but they're not making any effort you know they're saying they're maybe feminine but they're not presenting as feminine and I think often there is there's that whole sensory thing I mean it, it takes me back to when my when my oldest was uh, was was little and I could not get her to eat mashed potatoes because <laughs> mashed potatoes and she still absolutely finds mashed potatoes revolting because it's that sensory thing isn't it it's just too much and often people they do have heightened sensitivity when they're neurodiverse and I wish I'd known that back then 
but also you know just understanding that that sort of sensitivity might continue now and and, and that's certainly something I can feed back to other parents when we we talk about this so it's just really helpful to have that little you know moment of, of clarity for me but the other thing I was going to ask you was being non-binary is that even more sort of like complicated in terms of you know we don't really sort of discuss sort of a non-binary issue so much in the news, do we? I mean, there's obviously all the hoo-ha about um, transgender um, people getting gender recognition certificates, you know. But um, what about non-binary people? Because there's even more barriers, really, aren't there? Because their existence almost isn't recognised. So we don't really have many civil rights here in the UK as non-binary people. The, The government decided when when they looked into sort of non-binary identities, whether they should be included in gender recognition. And they decided that we we experienced um, no specific je- detriment. That's the term they used. Um, so yeah, it, they, unlike trans men and women, apparently our identities matter less or, you know, have less significant impacts on us. None of that's true. The majority of trans people, according to the LGBT survey that the government did back in 2018 are non-binary. So we're the biggest group, you know, and there are people who have been fighting for um, non-binary civil rights for a very long time and in other countries have got them. I'm not particularly um, obsessed with the idea of gender recognition or the need for gender recognition or the processes you have to get go through to get gender recognition. It's all a bit of nonsense to me and I think protections under the Equality Act, obviously, which we're losing as a whole community at the moment. But, you know, we were just beginning as non-binary people to gain some protections under the Equality Act. For a long time, it was thought that we weren't included. And then there was a landmark case um, that said that we were, but I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that's going to really stand up too much. But, you know, the reality is that, you know, I'm constantly facing infrastructure that, asks me to make a statement about my gender that is very, very difficult to make. Like, I applied for a library card, and they gave me a tiny little half A4, A5 form, tiny, but it still managed to fit a question about whether I was male or female on it. (laughs) Why do you need to know? And what do you mean by that? Because, like, my NHS records say one thing, my passport says one thing, my birth certificate says something else. Hormonally, I'm male. I was female assigned at birth. What do you want? I, I don't know what you're asking when you ask me that question. As an autistic trans non-binary person, it's a hard question to be asked. <laughs> so I'd really rather not yeah. just to get a library card. Yeah. And I don't think they need to know. And obviously e- equality monitoring, that's different, but there are there are ways to ask that question in yeah. a, um, on monitoring forms. And if you go to my website, there's a free guidance document that will tell you how. Um, I'm not selling anything. There's nothing to sell there, but there's some great free resources on my website. But yeah, it's that frustration of constantly coming up against infrastructure. Like in the end, I went for 10 years without a passport because I really, really hoped that I'd be able to get an X on my passport and not have to put an M or an F. Um, But then I finally had to had to concede that I was going to have to get a male passport if I was going to have a passport at all. and uh, so my passport's got an M on it for whatever that means. And that has real world implications because actually 
the scanners they have in airports are configured to different bodies and different body shapes. And it's worth trans people especially knowing this, that if those things pick up stuff that's not supposed to be there or isn't there that is supposed to be there, they will go beep, beep, beep. And you might get quite an invasive search. So it is actually worth thinking about what you need to do in order to be safe going through. Um, airport security but the complication then of having a passport that declares you as this and then maybe not having everything that lines up with that, that so I was wondering if we could sort of talk a little bit more about the, the sort of therapy what would you say the sort of trends are you know what sort of issues do you do you deal with when you're working with transgender people what's coming up for you in in the therapy room actually yeah, I think people rarely do talk about being trans I think half the joy of being able to talk to a trans competent therapist or, a tra- or somebody who shares your identity is it kind of gets it out of the way because what we tend to find as clients when we go to therapists who aren't competent in this area is they kind of map everything back onto you being trans and map everything back onto transition and they call it trans broken arm syndrome um and that comes from a, a genuine case where a trans woman got pushed back on her health insurance because she'd broken her arm and they they tried to make it about her transition um so that's where the term comes from they they, they were like well, maybe your hormones made your bones more brittle and therefore maybe it's a pre-existing condition oh, goodness. Like a broken arm yeah um which is you know nonsense but this is what happens that uh, like once you're trans people will try and tie everything to that and therapists will often you know sort of make meaning of you know like if we have trauma histories and with neurodivergent and we're queer, they'll be like, oh, did your trauma history make you these things? And of course, the reality is that we're more likely to have trauma histories because we're marginalised people and marginalised people get targeted for abuse because we're less likely to be believed, we're less likely to have support. Um, So our marginalised identities make us more likely to be traumatised. But, you know, a not helpful therapist might get very muddled around that and not be able to hold that. So, you know, I work a lot with trauma, I work a lot with survivors, I work with sort of relationship diversity. Yes, sometimes I'm talking, some some, some of my clients come to me and say, I want to work through, you know, sort of my gender and figure out my gender. Or they might come out to me in the process of therapy as trans, but it certainly isn't the core of my work. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I've just written um, a long essay on, on my website about anti-oppressive practice. And, and for me, it all boils down to empathy. Um, and often when we're having conversations about things like trans rights, there is an invitation to empathise with how difficult it is for you know, how difficult it is for parents to have a trans kid or for somebody who's been challenged when they um, when they get someone's pronouns wrong or, you know, sort of somebody who might feel uncomfortable seeing a trans woman in a space. People feel uncomfortable and people worry about those people feeling uncomfortable. And what I notice is there's a really astonishing lack of empathy for how it is for trans people. So you know, you are not going to end up with psychological problems as a result of having been corrected about somebody's pronouns. 
but you are likely to end up with psychological problems if you are repeatedly misgendered. But we don't channel our empathy towards the injured person, the person who's actually experiencing that marginalising um, minority stress. And, and I find that really interesting. And I, I think that whenever we hear something on the news about trans people, whenever we are invited into debating whether trans people should have civil rights, um, if we engaged our empathy in the right direction and actually thought about how it is for trans people and, and actually believe that their experiences are real and deserving of kindness and empathy. I think we've been having different conversations, but I think it's very interesting to me how easily we can skip over empathising with, like, you know, when we worry about detransitioners, we completely fail to empathise with all of the people whose healthcare is being denied and and the, and the levels of trans suicides that are going up because their healthcare is being denied. And we, we don't even worry about that because all we worry about is that sort of that one person who might have made a mistake. And, and I think it's really interesting if we notice ourselves doing that and think about why are we prioritising our empathy towards one group of people? Or, you know, if we're talking about prisoners, you know, we're very, very concerned about prisoners suddenly when it comes to sort of trans women. Um, but we're not at all concerned about the fact that trans women are getting raped in men's prisons. We're not remotely concerned about that. And we're not remotely concerned about the level of inmate rape that is happening as a result of rape by guards and rape by other women inmates, which is really, really high in prisons. We're not particularly concerned about the prisoners until we're having a conversation about trans stuff. So I'm, yeah, I'm interested in where our empathy flows and why our empathy flows and what what psychological processes are going on for us when we avoid doing the work of thinking about and empathising about marginalised people, especially at a time when they are being made social scapegoats um, and it's becoming a bit of a, a fad to scapegoat trans people. And, you know, we know that po um, populist politicians, extreme right-wing politicians, are using LGBT rights as a wedge issue and as a way of giving momentum to their campaigns. But it's really interesting to me how people can jump onto that bandwagon and start to say really quite toxic things and how our media can say quite toxic things. And people let themselves not think about what that means. So I'm curious about why that happens. I think we need to all think about it. Mm. Thank you so much, Sam, because that's articulated it, I think, so well. And I really appreciate that. And, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and, and, and have a chat with me and just share from the depth of your, your knowledge and experience. And Thank you so much, Sam, for, for coming and, and being with me today. Really enjoyed chatting to you. Thank you. Thank you. There's a piece of research that I read a while back where transgender people's experience was described in detail. And there was one line that seared through me as a parent. The participant described how they were advised by their parents to wait and see. And the result was, in the participant's words, my parents forced me into a puberty I didn't want. And in this interview, we've heard Sam describe how, 
If only they'd been listened to as a young person, much difficulty and grief could have been avoided. And for me personally, I have a memory of sending my daughter's sweatpants to recycling because I couldn't bear to see her, from my perspective, of slopping around the house not getting dressed properly. Sam's words about how neurodivergent people find certain clothes and makeup a sensory overload was an aha moment of understanding what was going on for one of my daughters. Why those typical feminine trappings of uncomfortable underwear, after all, who really loves wearing an underwear bra, tight shoes and scratchy tops, just aren't for her. Bring back the sweatpants, I say. I understand now. So wouldn't life be so much easier on us all if we just listened to each other? And as Sam said in the final section, empathised with transgender people. 